Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler. And today we're talking about asymmetric knowledge problems and some of the moral implications of those. And so we've got a lot of examples lined up. This sounds rather abstract at first, but we're going to explain it in ways that help connect it to our everyday experiences in life. And I expect that most people, you know, once we explain what an asymmetric knowledge problem is, they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I I face those every single day, right? (laughs) Right. And it's kind of like there's always you're like trying to grok for a word to try to describe something. And you you see it a lot of times like, oh, there's a a word that I just heard about recently. It's like the feeling of of walking into a spider's web and uh, some uh, wordsmith like, oh, I'm going to apply a word to this because there's there's no word that actually describes this well enough as like a singular term. What did they come Um, up with? Oh, I... Unfortunately, I can't remember. <laughs> I feel a little silly about bringing it up. Words are failing um, you. Yes. Um, so uh, this is uh, asymm- uh, asymmetric knowledge problems, otherwise known as information asymmetry, is just a traditional um, a type of market failure. So this originally comes from economics. So you got to explain. One... You got to explain what a market failure is. I think for for our okay. Listeners. Um. Let me just finish the sentence. A market failure where one agent has uh, more or better information than the other. And so market failure is uh, within market theory, something that prevents uh, an equilibrium point happening between supply and demand in your supply and demand curves. And uh, under an ideal market, and you know, we have to call it a deal because usually they never exist. Theory, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but there's some generalities of like, okay, uh, you're you're selling something for um, X amount of price, um, and so you say you're you're selling something for ten dollars, and only five people will buy it. But if you lower the price to eight dollars, all of a sudden twenty people will buy it, and and that that and then if you go down more, then you're uh, you're redu- you're going to the point where it costs, or you're selling it for less than what you're actually producing it, and so then there's not an incentive to make any more of it. And so the idea yeah. over here is you're trying to bring it to a, the the lowest price that will uh, get everyone to or the most people wanting to buy it. You know, there's a classical um, asymmetric knowledge problem with respect to buying and selling with with grain that comes up in the ancient world and some of the different stoics weighed in on it and and they disagreed about what was okay and what wasn't okay it was if you are in a city and you've got a you've got a boat and it's laden full of grain right so you're bringing wheat in or barley or something like that and the city has been suffering a famine and um, you know that right behind you coming in tomorrow are like a whole bunch of other barges all full of grain, but you are pulling in that day with uh, the only grain that anybody knows is there except for you. Do you have to reveal that there's more grain coming 
And if you do, obviously the price of your grain is going to go down. Or should you just um, sell it for as much as you can? And it's interesting because one of the Stoic uh, scholarchs, Diogenes of Babylon, said, no, no, it's perfectly fine. You can, you can do whatever you want with it. You have no <laughs> obligation to tell anybody that there's going to be more of this product coming in. And so they don't have to pay you, you know, premium prices. And his successor, Auntie Potter, said, this is something bad. Diogenes should not have said this. It actually comes up in, in uh, one of Cicero's books where he's recounting it. That's the only reason why we, we know that this, this exchange happened. And it, it seems like Auntie Potter thought that Diogenes was actually kind of a kind of a shifty guy for suggesting <laughs> that it could be okay, that the captain or the, the owner has no obligation to to reveal that information. It seems a little bit at odds with some of the very uh, pro-social uh, underpinnings of a lot of stoic thought. It could be. I mean, we, we don't know much together. more about the thing. I mean, maybe Diogenes would have said, well, you know, you can make a lot of money and then you can like spend it on helping people or something. We don't, we, we have no idea. You know, we don't actually know that right. much about Diogenes other than he was one of the representatives for Greek philosophy when they sent three ambassadors of philosophy to Rome. Um, and it, it was an unsuccessful mission because the guy who was the, the representative of the academy, which at that time was skeptical, um, argued on one side of an issue the first day, then argued on the other side of the issue the second day. And so some of the more conservative Romans were like, look at these guys, you know, you can't trust them on anything. And that's actually, you know, to come back to the topic, asymmetric knowledge problems do involve questions of trust, right? And, and who, we, who we can get information from and who, who we owe information to. Right. You said it was a failure, didn't they? Like they were had a, a five hundred talent um, tax levied on them, and they are uh, uh, not a tax, but a um, fine levied on them. Did they not uh, reduce that uh, to like maybe two hundred talents? Oh, the uh, the ambassador uh, thing. Yeah, I think that that's that they were successful in that respect, but the Romans, at least the conservative ones, were like, no, we don't want philosophy around here. You know, so it was unsuccessful as you're right. They, they were successful in their official mission. They were unsuccessful in their their more cultural mission, you could call it. <laughs> and, and thus starts uh, is a, like another step in the long lines of the Romans throwing out philosophers. That's right. They, there were a few times when not only individual philosophers got exiled, including quite a few of the Stoics, uh, for, for reasons we can talk about some other time. But there were there were a few uh, Roman emperors who kicked all of the philosophers out of Rome. Uh, Diocletian, I think, was one of them. And I mean, imagine if you were like one of the, the uh, people practicing philosophy and teaching people and you built up a practice in, you know, at that time, it'd be like sort of like being in New York City or London or Paris. And then suddenly they tell you, OK, all of you get the hell out of here. You can't be be around. You know, you're you're destroying the culture. Um, if you don't get out of here, we're going to, you know, we'll do something to you. I don't know what they what the actual penalty was maybe it was death maybe it was just you know flogging or something like that 
you know. They were big fans of corporal punishment. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And and they did not like wait around. There wasn't like an appeals process, you know, where maybe you, you do something and then you go to trial like six months later and, you know, you go you, you go off to prison and, and uh, then you go through all your appeals. No, it was like, you know, pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you don't mind another digression, Socrates, right? Big father of philosophy in so many respects. Well, he was executed and and uh, he was condemned to death. And the only reason he wasn't like executed the next couple days was because there was some religious festival going on and they didn't want to pollute the city with executions. So he got to hang around and chat with his friends for about a month or so. You know? <laughs> Otherwise, it would have been curtains right away, you know. Right. And, and thank you for uh, reducing the asymmetry in knowledge of some of our <laughs> listeners. As we get back to asymmetric knowledge problems. Yeah. Um, and so now that we've talked a little bit about um, some market failures and what happens with the asymmetric knowledge problem often is that the, the true cost of something is either um, inflated or the... Um, the negatives of taking something are um, often uh, thus um, tamped down in order to make it once again the, the the value of the object to be greater than what it is. And so, yep, please. Well, I was wondering. There's another kind of market failure that we talk about quite a bit in business ethics: negative externalities, where you displace costs onto somebody, and then the costs aren't aren't actually taken into account. So, like. Pollution is a classic example. Um, sweatshops are, are another example. You know, when you're when you're buying what they call fast fashion, um, there's a good chance that there's some misery built into, or baked into, or woven into rather, um, the clothing that you're you're purchasing. And I mean, we can say this about so many other things as well. You know, our, our cheap meat comes uh, because of factory farming in large part, right? And if you if you know about what, what happens in factory farming, both to the animals and to the, the people doing the work uh, who are usually pretty poorly paid and working under you know, bad conditions and think about the environment, you, you might say, well, I'm, I'm either willing to pay more for meat, you know, purchase it from an ethical butcher, or I'm going to you know, be vegetarian. Um, so, I mean, do, do these so, externalities fit in with uh, asymmetric knowledge yeah. problems? Um, because a lot of the times, as we'll actually talk about a little bit later, um, the asymmetric knowledge problems um, hide or obfuscate these negative externalities. And, well, that makes and a lot so, of sense, yeah. And so no, now you're not even aware that they're happening. It's like, oh yeah, it's it's totally fine. Like you, you go to the store and you you buy a you know a carton of eggs for a dollar and not actually know what are all the costs and you. Um, you you drive and you don't know exactly what all the costs. Yeah, you just went to the gas station. You didn't see anything. And yeah. it, it looks nice and shiny and clean at your your local BP or something. And um, but it you know uh, a facade does not give you all the information that you need. So, um, and and so if you but in away from the negative externalities if you're just talking about like uh you 
for example, this this person with the, the grain, and he knows that more grain is coming over. You, you can say like, oh yeah, like I can. Um, th- there's no more grain coming, so I'm gonna jack up the price, which then uh, reduces that person. Like, oh well, you need grain to eat, but yeah. then that is taking away other money that they might need for other, uh, you know, basic needs. Maybe they can't uh, buy new clothes or shoes for their kids or something. You know, and, and he doesn't even need to like lie to them and say there's no more grain coming. He just he just has to like not say that there's mm-hmm. that that what he knows to be the case. These ships are coming in tomorrow, and the market's going to be flooded with grain. He just doesn't have to say that, and he's mm-hmm. already taking advantage of. Um, the fact that most people believe that to be the case, right? Mm-hmm. Or you know, you also get this a little bit if you're like the only one that can provide something. Like even if it like stuff might be coming, you can you can jack up the price. Um, even though you may be able to produce more of it and reduce it yourself, but it, that's just more work for you. You could even potentially make more money, but like, hey, like what's a, a marginal increase in money if I have to work 10 times as much? You know, and there's a story about another philosopher <laughs> who, who did exactly that. And, and, and he, it was sort of a in-your-face kind of thing, right? So Thales, who gets made fun of quite a lot because he said everything was water and, you know, how could anyone be so dumb as to think that? Um, he, he was a meteorologist as well as a, a philosopher. He's always looking at the, the sky and he walked into a ditch, and so some some servant, you know, you know, girl made fun of him. You know, ah, oh, look at the stupid philosopher. You know, heads in the clouds and all that. And as it turned out, um, he, by virtue of of his um, meteorological observations, he was able to predict that it was going to be a really good year for olives one year. And so he went around and he he got basically like options on all of the different olive presses because, you know, olives are no good if you can't press the, the oil out of them. And so everybody who had this this great crop then had to come to him to press their their uh, their oil. And, and he, he, you know, he could charge basically any price that he wanted because he mm-hmm. bought, you know, as they say, buy low, sell high. Right. That's exactly what this this philosopher did. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because another kind of market failure is monopoly. Right. Mm-hmm. Or or anything that's like a monopoly when you have a cartel. So I guess uh, asymmetric knowledge problems often lend themselves to monopolization of of uh, information or resources or whatever it is that we've got going on, right? Correct. And you know, it was great for Thales, but like if he was the only one, <laughs> yeah. now uh, all the all the producers now like lost their shirt that year. Well, they, I think they they probably he didn't like charge them so much that they went out of business, but he could charge them, like, say, double what what they normally would get. They still had a great year, so they're still making money, but they're not making as much money as they would if there was a complete open market on olive presses. Yeah, it reminds me of um, there was, I want to say it was either, like, cabbage or potatoes where someone basically bought up all the... Yeah, he, he totally cornered the market at it, and and he was cutthroat in the point where he um, made many farms go out of business. Oh, in that one year, and so his name is Mud. He made like a you know a hundred million dollars in a day, um, but within that farming community, he is like you know the boogeyman. Yeah, yeah. Um, but. Yeah, let's talk about some other yeah. venues in which this this <laughs> arises. 
So one of the big ones is is healthcare, um, especially in our country. And so if you're selling healthcare on a market, then that usually requires you to have the ability to go and actually uh, test prices between different providers. Mm. But when you're in an ambulance or you're unconscious, you have <laughs> zero to no chance of actually doing this. Yeah, uh, you know the 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 main thing is I don't want to die. Take me to the place that will make it so I don't die, and these uh, result in one. You know the the hospital can basically charge whatever it wants. You know, obviously there there are a myriad of different problems with the healthcare market. This is just one of them. So I'm not going to try to throw um, all the problems at this one. Uh, instance of a problem this is a really interesting one though because i've seen a lot of cases coming up where a person thinks they're consenting to something at at one level of cost and it turns out it costs way more or you know that their insurance is going to cover something and then it doesn't cover it and then Mm -hmm. somebody's got a got a i mean that's where a lot of these gofundmes that we see on social media are coming from right right and in your creating um Uh, uh, procedures. If you are like, oh man, markets are the, the way to actually like solve our problems here. Um, that these are uh totally disregarding the market. People are get sick and hurt and are exchange are charged excessive prices for something that they can't refuse. Otherwise, the alternative is death. Um, and and so you, you we have a incredibly large amount of uh, medical bankruptcies happening in this country due to this, you know, at least partly asymmetric knowledge problems within this market, which is failing constantly. Yeah. It's interesting because um, one of the, one of the promises of like having some sort of like the affordable care act, having some sort of public health option is that well? This is going to deal with these uh, these issues that are arising, people not being able to get you know covered, um, and not being essentially being the little person against the big big insurance companies, right? Mm-hmm. And in order to use your your insurance that you buy under the Affordable Care Act, it's very Byzantine. It's, 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 there's so many hoops that you have to jump through. You have to like make decisions at certain times each year, quite often without, you know, sufficient knowledge. And, 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 you know, unless you actually like go through line by line and look at what's covered and what's not from year to year, they change it. And so something that you thought was going to be covered isn't, it's not quite as bad as say like a user agreement, you know, mm. where almost oh, nobody God. reads those, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but it is uh, there 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 is definitely an asymmetry a, a there. Yeah, especially because a lot of like if you're looking at user agreements, these are written in legalese a lot of the time, and so unless you are have a speciality in that particular type of language and the laws that uh, govern those particular type of contracts, yeah. it is very difficult for you to have a good understanding of what you're actually agreeing to. That's interesting. So, you know, we often talk about like informed consent as being Mm -hmm. important in medical ethics in particular, but also like in in other areas. This is a bit of a side topic. Do you think it's possible to give informed consent to the average user agreement um, for most things like iTunes that we use or now it's Mm -hmm. it's, it's Apple Music or, or some of these other 
things. Do you think that the average person can really give informed consent or not? I would say if your your document is like a page long, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anything they're, they're beyond usually that, usually like not. thirty pages or something, and it's usually a small typeface. So it's it is a a massive block of text that is, you know, I've uh, helped in in. <laughs> creating these documents it, it it you know it took us like weeks to do it and you know how how are you as a user supposed to understand this when you're your your livelihood doesn't depend on on going into these things you just want to get your music or you just want to get your yeah you know um you want to swipe right for your date next right yeah I, I, you know, I think too, it would be very difficult to tell what's changed. I, I like that some of the um, platforms that I deal with will actually send an email saying, here's the changes we made to the agreement, right? But usually they're kind of like high level. They don't tell you what the real uh, nitty gritty, particular, you know, real granular level of changes are. Yeah, whenever I'm negotiating a contract, I actually use a, a tool in computer science called Diff. Oh. And so Diff Diff is used to find the the individual lines of codes or individual characters of codes that have changed between two iterations of code. And Interesting. so I use I use it like, oh, here, here's the revisions. And we like we talked about, I, we were going to talk about this revision and this place and this place. And I go, okay, well, let's see if this, this is actually the thing. <laughs> I put the text in one side and I put the new text in the other side. And it goes, here are all the lines where there's differences. And I go and check them out. Um, you know, usually they're, they're fairly straightforward, but like it, it gives you that peace of mind that you know that nothing is going to be put in there unbeknownst to you it also tells you if there's some red flags that need to be raised right because i, I guess we could talk about knowledge asymmetry on you know a base level and then we can talk about it on a higher level with things like that when when you know you you don't you, you remember that old rumsfeld uh thing that differentiation between there's you know things known, that we know unknowns and known there's known yeah. unknowns and then unknown unknowns. So the, the unknown unknowns are the ones we really have to watch out for. Right? We, have, we don't have any suspicion that something has been changed or slipped in there, you know, unless we do the sort of procedure that you're talking about, which really would require having, you know, something like a computer checking it because we're going to catch it eyeballing it ourselves. <laughs> right. Um, you know, Rumsfeld you know, got a, a lot of blowback from that, but I yeah, people, people you know, talked as if he was stupid, but it's brilliant. Oh yeah, it is great. But because, <laughs> it, you know, it was an unknown unknown. They'd never heard this thing before. And it sounded like gibberish at the very cursory look of it. Yeah. But yeah, it, it is incredibly useful. Actually, I've, I've used it a lot on in, in interviews. I'm asking, if you were me, like, what would you ask? Or like, if I, uh, like, because I don't know this job or this employer as well as you do. Uh, what are the things that I should have asked in this that I haven't asked? What sort of what sort of answers do you get out of, out of curiosity when you do that? Do they just look at you like a blank stare, or do they have an answer at the ready, or does it like kind of bother them? Uh, or the last time I used it, the guy said, "That's a really good question." Well, that's a stall. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, um, but at least he wasn't immediately dismissive of it. Yeah, um, 
and so we were um oh what was i doing it was talking to you know i don't think i can actually talk about that um but it's fine uh i wasn't in, in interviewing for a position but i was uh getting information from another company okay uh, in, in the relationship between my company and theirs um but uh yeah he actually came up with something that was really good um but once again can't say <laughs> well, now you're imposing <laughs> a knowledge asymmetry upon us right yeah and this brings us to if we want to talk about it um ndas and yeah yeah unfortunately <laughs> uh i i work in the tech industry uh, and I've I've signed literally hundreds of NDAs, and these um, are there uh, ostensibly to uh, protect the company, and and they can do that, but they can also be used to stifle inter- uh, information being yeah. leaked out, and to uh, potentially stifle blowback on the company for things that were kind of like malfeasance or maybe even illegal. Yeah, it seems like one of the big problems with NDAs. And I think we can also associate with this the requirement to go to arbitration, which has become more and more part of people's um, work contracts, is that it doesn't allow us. So if we imagine a, an ideal marketplace, right, the, the, the general idea is that bad actors are supposed to get a bad reputation and information about what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong is supposed to get out there. And then, you know, if, if somebody has a lot of, you know, bad reviews or uh, black marks or whatever we want to say, people will be less trusting of them and maybe will impose a higher premium on any sort of work that they do with them. But with NDAs and arbitration, it's impossible many times to tell who's good and who's bad, right? Because everybody's got this same slate. It's, it's similar to what happened with uh, uh, recommendations. You know, companies are very leery about saying that somebody wasn't a good employee. They'll just say, well, they worked here at this and that time. I, I know people who get around that by saying, I'm going to talk about the weather. Now, imagine if the weather showed up late all the time. <laughs> you know, you could, you know, there's ways to get around that. But, you know, what this is, is it, it's providing information that, that people need. So if you have, uh, well, you know, so what, what is the, the, the site? Is it front door that it, it provides? Glassdoor, right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's remedying that that problem in many respects or or you could think in like the academic world um no it's not perfect of course but rate my professor um some some schools use that quite a bit the schools don't use it the students use it quite a bit when i taught at marquette they would all tell me about you know my rate my professor things and that they use that um teaching at milwaukee institute of art and design i asked the students if they look at that and they're like we don't care about that it's all word of mouth but still it's 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 information you know, getting out there. So an NDA or you get or, any spicy chili peppers. I used to a long time ago. <laughs> not not any not any time in the last uh, couple jobs. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the last time I had that was back when I taught at Fayetteville State University, and that's almost a decade ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, it's it's um you know I, I I'm myself I kind of. I'm in favor of those sorts of things. I know a lot of professors are like, oh, these people are being mean and the scores are not reflective of my ability. But it's kind of funny when I when I like look at my my peers um, 
ratings and what the students have to say about them, the, the qualitative stuff rather than just the quantitative stuff, it's sometimes eye-opening. You know, you're like, oh man, I didn't know that about that person. Especially when you see like four or five students saying the same thing about them. You're mm-hmm. like, you know, they had me fooled. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I, I had a, a company was trying to look for us to be a, a contract at, at my current company. Um, and and they're like cold calling. It's like, hey, we're trying to drum up business. And I'm like, who are these people? And I just, I, I, I Googled them. And one of the first things that came up was um, a review of employees and their experience with this company. Oh. And, oh man, it was a, a bloodbath. Um, they just uh, reamed them out at every which way possible. And I'm like, if you're if you treat your employees like this, yeah. that you know you ostensibly are like part of your team, how are you going to treat me as a customer? So this is kind of something. This is a bit of a side note, right? So we're mm-hmm. we're digressing a bit, but um, when there are these knowledge asymmetries, like a company wants to keep anybody knowing whether they're a good or bad place to work, they want to have everybody assuming that they're a good place to work. Is it really possible to control that that information now in the internet age when we we do have all these platforms where people can grouse about it? I mean, you can you could like do a takedown order or something, but it's like playing whack-a-mole, right? They could they could pop it up somewhere else. Um, I mean, there are there are going to be exceptions to this, but does I mean, does it seem to you that it's more difficult to conceal information about, you know, being a bad agent in, in the marketplace. Now it's definitely more difficult to do that. There, there's a lot more, you know, sunlight that is being exposed out there. And especially because a lot of companies are, you know, they might not even be US based. And so like, hey, I, I try to do some sort of takedown court order or something. So it's mm. like, okay, but there you're in Sweden. And they're like, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that was a terrible accent. Um, and it wasn't identifiably Swedish, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I was willing to go along with it because you know. <laughs> um. But maybe back to some more examples of asymmetric yeah. knowledge problems. Um, and you know, I guess. Greg, what is the perception of a used car salesman? It's generally bad. I mean, I, I actually know a few people who have sold used cars. And um, as far as I know, they were fairly decent people. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how they were on the lot, you know. Right. So, so um, why is the perception of a used car salesman bad? That's a good question. Um I mean, there's, there's, I guess the, it must go back to decades and decades ago when you would sell cars that were not worth the price that you were selling them for, right? And you use mm-hmm. rhetorical techniques or things like that to get people to buy them. Or maybe you wouldn't honor commitments that are, that are made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. Like, you know, there's that. Uh, I, I remember like watching old films and like the Carl Schneidelsman is like out there rolling back the odometer. Oh, right. Uh, right. 
to make make the car look like it had less miles and like you know throwing some eggs in the radiator so to like plug up holes but then that's eventually going to wear out and so like it runs fine for you know maybe a week and then it starts all falling apart and you know the guy's like well you know uh you had a week to bring it back but you didn't so yeah sucks to be you i mean you see like uh what is the it's a car carfax reports Um, I was going to say CarMax, but I knew that was, that was wrong. That was the place that was selling them, right? Um, but yeah, CarFax. Yeah, so you can't get away with as much these days, right? Right, and, and you know, this is reducing that asymmetric knowledge problem. CarFax found a a market niche where uh, people wanted to know if the car, the used cars that they were making, um, are actually, you know, what they're purporting to be, and and give you some information about that. And like, oh, this one actually was win for a swim, or, or this one was yeah. in a, a, a accident, and the frame is actually bent, even though you can't quite see it from the outside. And and so these yeah, so that so that's a remedy, right? Right. For um, and so this is a, an could... example of of a market function fixing another a broken market failure. Yeah, we can call it an equalizer, right? Right. Perhaps is 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 a so let me let me ask you about uh, an example that I don't think we were planning on getting to, but you kind of brought up in a way. Um, like think about dating apps mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. dating in general. Um, you never really know somebody until you've been out with them for quite a while, unless unless you know them like you know because you were friends before or you went to school together or you've got people vouching for them so is there i mean is there always going to be like an asymmetric knowledge problem involved in people's romantic life and i mean is it is it is it worse because of um things like dating apps uh i mean some of them are are some of them, I guess, you could actually know a lot about the person because they ask you so many different questions. But people can always lie, I suppose. Too. Right. And it, and even if you're like, oh yeah, that person sounds like perfect, and they're not actually lying, but you could like get there, and all of a sudden there's something that just like totally pushes you off. It's so, it's such a, a hard thing to actually quantify is like yes that that person actually will be good for you and so we're all kind of going off of like you know a little heuristics here or there and yeah um i guess part of the the thing with these dating apps is that you're now presented with a a much larger market of individuals and now you have to figure out some way to actually weed out this information it's like okay i'm only going to try to interact with this group of people <laughs> and you and the, well yeah, yeah, yeah. like how, how do you go from a thousand to maybe 10 to choose from to actually choosing you know three to go out with and like you, you've only got so much time of the day you also have to make sure that, like they want to go out with you um and yeah you, you could say like well i'm i'm only going to talk to you on uh, redheads that also dye half their hair blonde and are between <laughs> five foot eight and five foot nine. You're really pricing yourself out of the market there. I think. <laughs> <laughs> At least here in Milwaukee, you know, maybe maybe in a bigger venue like Chicago or New York, you might find one. But uh, I don't know about that. Um, 
But I guess the, could be a long distance relationship, though, right? You could expand the pool worldwide. But yeah, as you're saying, like there, there's a lot of people that are like, oh, I won't date anyone under a certain height or under a certain weight, and so you see all the yeah. time there's inflation of of height and also deflation of weight statistics, you know, for men and women respectively, and you know, is I guess it, the proof is in the pudding, like. Can you get in the door? And is it moral for you to lie in order to get in the door to actually have the interaction <laughs> that is the true arbiter of if someone is a good fit for you? You know, that was, as you're talking about that, I was thinking about this and I wasn't going to ask the question, but now I am. Um, so, no, I, I've never used a dating mm. app in my life, right? I'm happily married and, and you know, um, it just, that, that's not that's something on my, on my mind, but I can well imagine ha- having known a lot of people who are you know using them and seeing uh, quite a few sitcoms that there would be people where you show up and they don't look anything like their mm-hmm. picture. Now, should that be like an automatic red flag of, well, I'm not going to get straight information out of this person because they lied about, you know, something so basic as what they they look like. And I'm not I'm not talking about like somebody who has somebody else's picture. (laughs) I'm talking about somebody who like maybe has, you know, the 12 year old uh, picture from back in the day. And that's that's what they put there. And now they're, you know, 12 years older and and they look quite different. Um, Should that, you know, with these asymmetric knowledge problems and and also with the unknown unknowns, Should we should we worry about red flags and say, ah, now I have to be much more skeptical. Now I have to like be alert to the fact that somebody might be trying to to snow me. Hmm. Like you yeah. know, with the used car thing, right? You walk onto a used car lot. If you don't think to yourself, there's a possibility that this person is going to try to BS mm-hmm. me. You're probably putting yourself at a disadvantage, right? Now, with with people, or you could also do this with job things, right? You show up to the to the job, and they're like, "Well, we closed that position, but we'd like to interview you for another position." Now, if I hear something like that, mm. I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know about that," you know? Yeah, I think it is a, a useful bit of things to to talk about, um, especially you know if if you're doing a dating app. In order to actually look for a relationship, um, you know, uh, trust is a really strong and and important uh, foundational stone. And if you're basing it off of something that is very, um, you know, already being deceptive at the very beginning of the offset, then that that is probably a a particularly egregious red flag that you should pay close attention to. Can we expand that broad, more broadly and say, well, if companies are going to lie to us, then we probably should expect them to lie the next time that they're they're uh, talking about something, you know, or if they're withholding information. Um, like, you know, for, there, there was an interesting thing that happened, I think it was in the summer. Um, somebody here in the downtown of Milwaukee, it was a construction crew, they hit a fiber optic cable. Mm. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but like the I remember downtown that you were was out. <laughs> inter- well, the whole downtown was out of internet for at least a day, and it, it got solved very quickly because when the mayor's office in the city hall doesn't have internet, 
you know, somebody's going to fix something. Mm-hmm. And that was part of the, the, the blackout area. And when you, when things like that happen, right, first your internet goes out and you're like, ah, what's going on here? Let's try to reset the modem. And then you call up the place and they're like, did you try resetting the modem? You know, and then, you know, pretty soon it, it comes out that there's, no, this is a bigger thing than, than we thought because mm-hmm. you're looking at your phone and you see like everybody in the area is like, what the hell, what's going on here? And then you, you like go to the, the app and the company and they're like, well, yeah, there's a, there indeed an outage. We're, we're not quite sure what happened. We'll, we'll get back to you when we do. You know, when, and you're like, when are you going to fix this? Well, it could be a day, it could be a week. Uh, you know, I don't know. You know, you know that they know, right? Uh, they have a pretty good idea of what's going on, most likely. But they trickle out the information bit by bit by bit. Now, if they're if they're if you know that they're doing that as a matter of course, then you probably are going to be skeptical of most of the things that the the company is saying, right? I guess uh, trust but verify is a, a useful topic here, or a useful uh, mode of interacting. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to trust you, you know, about as as much as it needs to be. Um, but you know, like, make sure, like, cross your eyes and or cross your T's and dot your eyes to make sure that yeah. what they're actually saying to you is is not just BS. Um, you know, a healthy skepticism, especially yeah, so as long the, I mean, as it's ver- not like life or death things. It's yeah. Verify implies that you could go to some other information source mm. and, and, and get information. Right. So well, I guess in your example, like you, the, the other people around you that say, Hey, we're all down as well as a way to at least, at least verify when the guy you talk him up, it's like, Hey, it's like, did you, check your modem it's like yes i checked my modem and also my neighbor's modem and and my neighbor's neighbor's modem you know we we're all down yeah. <laughs> i think it was social media that that we were able to find out what was what was what you know the the, the straight dope as they used to call <laughs> it right that somebody that somebody had hit a uh a cable and that it had to be fixed and all that because the company wasn't wasn't putting that information out at all yeah. but you know speaking of companies what do companies sell but products and yeah. there, there's a, a whole, you know, host of different uh, companies and industries that have produced products in which uh, they deceived and obfuscated and uh, did uh, put up lawsuits in order to prevent certain information be made public because it was usually a negative externality of that product. You know, one of the biggest ones is cigarette companies who... Uh, knew for a long time that these uh, their products that they sold, the, the basis of their company, yeah. um, at least had a, a correlation with uh, cancer. And and as more studies became, the you know, there was an absolute causation. But they they marketed them as healthy. They say like, oh yeah, you know, this you know, cigarette is the one that your doctor chooses. <laughs> and it. Uh, the guy like be in the the white lab coat and was like yes and like you know Paul Malls or the you know the most smooth and you're like for a, a healthy lung smoke Paul Mall you know uh, I don't know if that is actually what Paul Mall said on um, uh, just ripping. there was there was a cigarette though that <laughs> you're 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 right I remember seeing the ads you know and and there were some that were like you know this will kill bacteria in your throat. <laughs> Almost like gargling with Listerine, right? <laughs> um, and and so they like they they uh 
lied, they marketed, and they um, tried to silence people that were doing the science to make this like a public health risk. And then they, what was yeah. it in the the eighties? Did they get that giant? Um, uh, it was towards the end of the eighties. Right. You're talking about the big lawsuit. Right. That, um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's been funding that. the it truth was... campaign for the last thirty years now. Yeah. The 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 anti smoking campaigns. That that's right. I remember uh when that happened. I think I was um I think I was in high school when, when all of that was was going on. It was kind of, it was a very big thing. People a lot of people were very surprised. And I, I was surprised that people were surprised because it said on the packs by that time, you know, may cause cancer, all these sorts of things. But there were in fact a lot of people who were like, I I couldn't believe these companies would do this sort of thing. And you're like, how do you, you know, how do you not think that? Oh, but, my sweet summer child. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, another one here is um, the, the oil companies have known since like the 50s um, that their products were having a detrimental effect on the climate. Um, their own scientists uh, came out with these reports and they uh, stifled them, made sure that they, they didn't see the light of day. Um, and as we have more and more information at this point in time, it is absolutely apparent that, uh, you know, throwing a whole bunch of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is, has long-term detrimental effects on, uh, the, the temperature, our ability to grow crops, the acidification of the, the ocean, the, uh, yeah. all the food that we rely upon. And it's, and then they, they, fought tooth and nail and there's even still to this day um the movement saying this is all i don't know a hoax or just normal uh variations in the the carbon cycle and the uh, the earth and it's it's absolutely you know incorrect. how you know one way that you can tell that um this you know that there is like this withholding of, of information and spinning information going on is that it, just until recently conservatives in other countries didn't have any problem believing in global climate change they become a bit more americanized that way it, it, it's primarily in america where there's this oh you know it, it, who knows about the science and all that that sort of you know casting doubt sort of stuff uh in part because that it's where most of the, the companies are based and that's where they spend all the lobbying money. You know, you can't actually spend as much money in most other countries on buying politicians as you can here in the United States. And so, yeah, yeah, the conservatives in other uh, countries are like, yes, this is a thing. We should be doing something about it. Well, you know, what's really interesting with this one. Um, and I, I, I think we can find a way to spin this into the knowledge asymmetry, the smart money conservative or liberal or whatever is on global climate change. You look at the insurance companies uh, who nobody really thinks of as being, you know, politically liberal or anything like that. They know that it's happening because they're already like saying, eh, we're not sure we're going to insure these, these, you know, areas on the, on the Gulf coast anymore, or the rates are going to go way up. Uh, the army, you know, the Rand corporation, all, all these, all these places that think about like destabilization and global strategy they're, they've been sounding the alarm about climate change and the dislocations that it's going to lead to in terms of, you know, food and population movement for 10 years now. So, you know, 
yeah. in order to, to say it's not happening, you really got to go against a lot of, you know, heavy hitters, I think. Yeah, what the, the U.S. military says the number one um, strategic problem in the world is climate change. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. these, that's their entire job is to try to figure out, like, well, what are the dangers that could uh, potentially befall our country? And they're like, this is number one. It's like, well, maybe we should listen yep. a little. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, and, and, you know, one of the reasons why they're doing this is they know of $13 trillion worth of oil that is yet to be pumped out of the ground. And so they've got $13 trillion, $13 trillion reasons to try to block this yeah and, and they might find more too you never know oh yeah <laughs> uh, so uh you know uh, another uh classic is upton sinclair's the jungle which was a uh, you know bit of yellow journalism bringing to light the uh malfeasance within the meatpacking industry at the time and how they were selling rotten diseased and contaminated meat directly to your home you know <laughs> yeah, you know that 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 old proverb of you don't want to see how the sausage is me, being made. Mm-hmm. Upton Con- Sinclair showed you how the sausage was being made, and it grossed a lot of people out. Yeah, and and it resulted in a a, a massive amount of a reform in the industry. But like they, the, the meatpack industry was not happy at all with them and bringing yeah to light this uh, you know selling of you know roadkill. <laughs> This is a really great example, though, because and I think we can we can apply this to other food stuff today. Um, you know, consumers really do need to know what's going into the stuff that they're putting on their table and putting into their stomachs. Um, and, and and there's there's so many cases where it's you know I suppose that the information is there, but it's hard to access or people don't know. When they like look at the ingredients, they're they're not sure how to make sense out of whether it's good or bad for them, you know. So this this um, brings up the issue of information literacy that I think we should we should talk about after we go through a few more examples. Yeah, well, um, maybe let's talk about uh, quickly the um, I guess live markets, uh, you know, or, or wet markets that you find in certain countries and how this is a breeding ground for zoonotic diseases and zoonotic diseases are uh, just those diseases that move between um, humans and um, animals and uh, usually it's it's birds that's you know where we get flu and uh, um, SARS and a number of other things as well as I believe COVID um, yeah although we share we share a lot of uh, uh, stuff with with pigs too right that's another sort of hotbed for that. And and putting together these markets where you have lots of different um, animals that are potentially disease carriers and stacking them on top of each other. And so their you know, feces drops between them, which is a vector for uh, pathogens to move between these. And that is, is just a breeding ground. It's like, you know, I don't know if this is exactly, this is like, a black box asymmetry because maybe the, the the people that are selling don't even know how bad this is and if they are yeah. told they might not believe it um because it's just what they've been doing for such a long time yeah you know and, and i brought up factory farming mm-hmm. before in this i think we can say something quite similar about factory farming here in the united states it's not like the uh, factory farming and and the meatpacking industry, you know, mm-hmm. as it currently exists, um, it's not as if we um, 
recruit people who are particularly well educated for these these sorts of things. It's it's, it's primarily people who are uh, economically vulnerable that wind up in these these jobs. They're often exploited. Um, working conditions, you know, safety things are often not followed, and we're we're kind of like just almost setting up a a uh, prime situation for outbreaks of of or transfers of of diseases back and forth between humans and animals. You know, right? And uh, especially factory farming, there's a, a very liberal use of antibiotics, which oh right, right, uh, yeah, create help yeah antibiotic resistant uh variations yeah yeah quite quite true so so where does the knowledge asymmetry come in i mean we could talk about it knowledge asymmetry in terms of like the people who are working there mm-hmm. not knowing how much at risk they are um i, I think but, there's for the owners knowing that you know they're trying to ma- maximize profits and they're not actually looking at this negative externality and so uh, and and we as consumers of you know the pork that comes out on our uh, plates um, aren't told uh, explicitly that these are used with a large amount of antibiotics and the harms yeah. that that causes. And so, you know, if if there is yeah, any, um, what is that, uh, non-exploitive buying in capitalism, um, this is extra bad. <laughs> yeah. And it, this is just a side note, but I mean, it's become worse and worse and worse in recent decades. Um, and it, it's not like it was great when we were kids, but it's it's way worse now, you know, than, than it was. I mean, <clears throat> we, we um, pay an extra premium for ethically um, grown and harvested meat ourselves because we, we feel pretty strongly about this. Um, but I think most people don't know that much about it. You know, I think maybe we need a new uh, Upton Sinclair mm. or something like that for our. Well, we we could, but they outlawed uh, taking videos at many factory farms. And... True. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. So, um, that that is you know, uh, companies getting the state to uh, enforce uh, information asymmetry. Yeah, so so there's at any given time there's like a lot of different forces kind of jockeying, right? Mm-hmm. There's companies want to keep control over information as much as possible. Um, oftentimes they'll use the state, which sometimes has a real interest in like keeping things under wraps as well. And then we've got the internet, which you know it can be very helpful in that you can share information, but then quite a bit of the information can also be disinformation, right? Uh, Companies can just as easily like send a, a bunch of astroturfed uh, Twitter bots to to tweet about whatever whatever line they have or pick pick any other sort of scenario you want. So there, you know, it's not as if we have an easy solution to this, right? Right. Um, maybe talk about um, like a little bit of information literacy and overload, and maybe that will bring us to something. Yeah. So. Let's talk about information overload. This, this is something I, I notice with my, my students who often are not particularly information literate, meaning they don't know where to go to get information or how to do research or stuff like that. When they do um, start looking for things, it's almost like the proverbial fire hose coming at them, and they don't know how to sift the relevant uh, sources or the relevant bits of information apart from the stuff that's not 
particularly helpful, you know. So, you know, a good example of, um, of, of this sort of thing is going, you know, just Googling and taking like the top 10 things that come up. Those, those probably are not the best information sources in most cases. Um, they, they may lead you to better sources. Like Wikipedia has gotten quite a bit better over the years. There's still some areas where it's kind of, kind of, you know, but that sources not, section not as at the bottom is be. like, hey, look, you can find some primary sources. Yeah, sometimes. It's, you know, I, I look at things where I have a competency in that, and I'm like, there's better sources that they could have put there, but this is this is what the editors have done, mm-hmm. and it's better than nothing, right? Um, so information literacy is knowing – there's a whole bunch of uh, components to it. As a matter of fact, the, the library association – um, you know, they're, they're the ones who've done a lot of work on this, this sort of thing. I did a fellowship with them years and years ago, the ACRL, about information literacy and how to incorporate it in our classes because our students, um, they, they often don't have any idea where to go to get, get better information. Like, what are the good sources? How do you, how do you determine what counts as, as a good source? How do you dig deeper and deeper and deeper? And so... You know, I know we're getting close to running out of time. I'll just say this, that, that it's really important that people um, don't just pick the first source out there, but start, you know, exploring around to, to try to find better and better information. It's like an iterative process, right? Mm-hmm. And the more you know, the more you know that you don't know. Well, that and that can be a bit dismaying too. <laughs> so may, maybe maybe where we want to end before we yeah. we get to the final thoughts is is like on a, on a note of optimism, <laughs> right? We've talked so much about like what we don't know, but we we are in a better position than say twenty years ago or, or forty years ago, like when we had card catalogs that we'd have to go to or like look in the reader's guide to figure out what what newspaper or magazine we'd go to to get the information. Now so much is available at our fingertips. Yeah, and it's it's a, a fire hose. And how do you properly kind of like curate that fire hose to actually get you the the best? And it, that's a, an unsolved problem at the moment. And I think the the best thing we have for that is maybe you know people in the library sciences to that that's their entire job is to try to suss out a lot of the best information. So, so maybe. Uh what we want to say is people need to to go to the librarians a lot more right yeah they're they're not just to to find you books they're they're there for all sorts of other things go go give some love to your librarians (laughs) (laughs) so got some uh, a final thought the words of upton sinclair it is difficult to get a man to understand something when a salary depends on him not understanding it (laughs) 